You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Nikki Haley vows to fight on after a trouncing in New Hampshire, but is it now game set and rematch for Trump versus Biden? Israel and Hamas are reportedly on the verge of another ceasefire. The doomsday clock is kept at 90 seconds to midnight, but is it an analog relic in a digital age? And why tea could once again provoke diplomatic difficulties for the special relationship. I'm Vincent McAvinney. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. My guests today, Julie Norman and Ben Kelly, will discuss the day's big stories and we hear from an Oscar-nominated director. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Well, this is the Monocle Daily. I'm Vincent McAvinney, and I'm pleased to say I'm joined today by Julie Norman, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at UCL, and by Ben Kelly, Journalist and Audience Editor for Newsweek. Hello to you both. How's 2024 so far? First appearances this month, this year, I think. Oh, maybe that's true. Yeah, I would say it's off to a very fast start. Um, but um, I would say difficult things in the world, but like you got to focus on personal stuff and like friends, family, all that kind of stuff doing okay. So, mm-hmm. Ben? Yeah, and we're already hurtling towards award season. So, you know, things are looking up. In ten, like Moira Ray's <laughs> quote coming to mind, your favorite season of the year? Yeah, awards. Yeah, okay, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, we might talk about some of those nominations at some point. But first, New Hampshireites like to quote their former governor, John H. Sununu, who famously said that the people of Iowa pick corn, the people of New Hampshire pick presidents. Last night, that seemed to be the case, at the very least picking the clear Republican candidate for the president already. Whilst there are still 48 states and a handful of territories and D.C left to caucus and primary, Donald Trump won by such a significant margin over his former UN ambassador Nikki Haley that apart from jail, and even that's not certain to be a barrier, or that McDonald's and Diet Coke diets doing him in, it seems we're in for a 2020 Trump-Biden rematch. Julie, as our US representative at the table, how does it make you feel? (laughs) Well, I guess I would say it's not a huge surprise, right? I mean, the polls were showing that Trump probably would win in New Hampshire, People were hoping, I think, for a Haley upset. That's for a couple reasons. New Hampshire allows independents to vote in the primaries and also just the Republican base there tends to be a bit more moderate. So if she was going to have a victory, that's probably where it was going to be. Um, but I will say the numbers going into the race weren't looking positive for her. And indeed, the outcome really did um, de facto clinch it for Trump, I would say. And Ben, how do you think the rest of the world felt uh, waking up to the news? Well, I think a lot of people are still always just asking themselves the same question, you know, what, Trump again? Anyone who's not been tuning in and will be tuning in as these months go along will be very, um, you know, curious. I think they thought that chapter was closed. Um, but anyone who's been paying attention knows that it's far from closed. And as you say, even a even a trip to prison is unlikely to stop Trump on his march um, back towards certainly being the, the November candidate. Um, you know, and, and there has been a little bit of a, a primary challenge from these couple of people and he's just sort of seen them off very easily in, in the way that he has done before. He hasn't lost that. If anything, he's sort of bounced back. Mm. And Julie, there are some saying that there's only a fraction of the electorate. Neither of these first two states are particularly representative of the whole. Uh, but does this look like Trump 
has momentum going towards November. It absolutely does. And I would say even states that, say, Democrats often lean on more, South Carolina will be coming up in a month. Trump is polling much better there against Haley than um, in, in any of these early states. So the states yet to come, I would say, are probably better better for Trump even than these early ones, even as they expand in diversity. And that just really shows the kind of hold he has on the party, at least the party members that come out to vote for a primary. I, I will note, I think going into November, a general election, um, it will still be a toss-up, especially if there are some kinds of convictions by then. But in terms of primary voters, he pretty much has it locked. Yeah, yeah, there was some indication from people who voted yesterday that um, you know they weren't so keen on him facing legal trouble and that might change the way that they go forward. But there was some polling as well that showed that two-thirds of people who voted for Trump yesterday wouldn't describe themselves as being MAGA people. So actually, he is winning over more Republicans than the base. But then on that issue of legal trouble, it's really interesting because he only was able to become president in 2016 and to be inaugurated in 2017 because he settled that case, that fraud case around Trump University. That was, you know, hugely legally problematic. More recently, the the, um, the case in New York, the civil case over a sexual assault claim. I mean, the jury there found him guilty of that. So are legal issues really going to stop him or are people just factoring it in now already? Yeah, to me, they will not hurt him as much as I think many are hoping that it will. Um, if anything, many MAGA, but also just many, even independents, uh, just feel like the, there is overreach with some of the legal cases, um, especially the, the original New York one. And just in many ways, Trump plays this to his advantage. I think he will use the courtroom as his campaign trail and make himself, um, as always, uh, the victim, showing himself as the victim of the deep state and really just um, rallying people around him with that kind of framing. And Ben, Nikki Haley says that she's going to stick in the race uh, for now. We've got uh, South Carolina, her own state, coming up pretty soon. Um, Do you think she has a shot in this or is she just staying in as sort of the contingency candidate in case, you know, one of these court cases doesn't go his way or there's divine intervention? Yeah, I think she's been waiting to see, for example, people who drop out, you know, what does she take from them? I think she's been waiting to see, maybe hoping that he will um, be damaged by these legal things and that she can maybe then be the person that steps in, just setting herself up as the alternative from the field. But yeah, I would expect that she'll keep going to South Carolina. It's, as you said, it's her home state. But if she can't win there, if she can't put in a good showing there, then that probably really is the end of the line. Mm. And Julie... We've seen, you know, immediately in his resignation, uh, Ron DeSantis backs Trump, the Vivek Ramaswamy, the other candidates all coming for him, but also just now establishment candidates in the Republican Party like Marco Rubio suddenly, you know, falling in line once again. Why do you think they're doing this now so quickly? And is there anything that this party could have done in the last four years to stop this from happening? Because could they have just, you know, put a, if they had taken seriously what happened on January 6th, could they have enacted procedures to stop him being their official candidate? Well, I do think the party could have done a lot to um, to prevent this from happening over over time. But now it's definitely that horse has bolted and um, they really can't compete with the voter passion for Trump. And I think most of these individuals, most of these donors, most of the party is really just reading the writing on the wall and saying, this guy is going to be the candidate. Trying to stop him is just going to, um, you know, it, the party would kind of fall apart because he he commands so much control over it. So they're they're just 
falling in line, as you said. Um, but uh, but I do think there were were times before this where people could have stepped up, especially right after January 6th, um, to uh, to impeach him at that time would have been the, the clear way to do it. And now we're kind of in these other legal um, intricacies trying to see if there's a way to get him off the ballot. Um, but it, I, I don't see many of those going anywhere at this point. Mm. And Ben, for foreign governments looking on, particularly friends of the US, Taiwan, Ukraine, the EU, NATO allies, pretty much all those Trump saw as foes in his first term. This is looking worrying. Yeah, I think everyone has to reconsider what their relationship is going to be with the US if Trump is president again, what his sort of renewed foreign policy will be. Are we going back to that sort of protectionism that he touted in the early days? Has he got new ideas? How is he going to respond to things such as Russia, Ukraine? Of course, he's, you know, he's very keen to settle that in a way that perhaps wouldn't be very favourable to the Ukrainians from what we can guess. What's he going to do with Israel? All these other hotspots. Um, and, and China, which has heated up in, in previous years as well. Um, I think everyone's got to sort of go back to the drawing board and come up with a plan B for, for Trump 2024. Mm. And Julie, particularly that point on NATO, if you were at headquarters in Brussels right now, what would you be recommending? Yeah, well, I will note, and I do think this is important, the US Congress in December passed a bill kind of mitigating a Trump withdrawal. So pretty much the president can no longer just withdraw unilaterally from NATO. There has to be two-thirds congressional support. And I do think that was an important mitigation. With that said, um, he probably will weaken the institution if he has the chance. Biden, I think, has really obviously strengthened it with with allies in the course of Ukraine. Um, and so I think Europe is very well aware of this now and is uh, trying to put contingencies into place. Hmm. Well, turning to the Middle East now, where Israel is pressing ahead with its assault on the southern Gazan city of Khan Yunus. However, Reuters is reporting that Israel and Hamas have moved closer to agreement on a 30-day ceasefire in Gaza, with Israeli hostages set to be exchanged for Palestinian prisoners. Julie, the US has been heavily involved in shuttle diplomacy with Qatar and Egypt for several weeks. Do you see this coming about soon? Uh, all I can say is I, I I very much hope so. And I would say this comes partly from external pressure, the U.S. global pressure for a ceasefire, um, but also internally, domestically from Israel, real pushes and real activism on behalf of the hostages from their families and, and from supporters. So I think the Israeli government knows there, there needs to be movement here. Um, trying to actually work out the specifics, I think, is going to take a bit longer. The big question is Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire as part of this. Israel so far is not going for that. They're saying this is just going to be temporary. We're going to finish the operation, you know, after the hostages are, are released, um, hopefully. So so that, I think, is where the sticking point is going to be, even before the, the deeper details. Mm. And Ben, this ceasefire would allow aid into Gaza. But do you think it would also give proper time for the two sides to try to bring this to an end? I mean, all you can do at this point is try and, and try and buy that time. People are desperate for the humanitarian aid. That's the first thing that you see so many people being passionate about, whether it's, you know, from the pulpits of politicians or whether it's on social media. Um, we're really acutely aware of how little they have there and how um, how much people's lives are constantly threatened by being in the middle of this. So some sort of cessation to that is the first instance. Um, but yeah, what that then leads on to, and you know, you're then getting to, you know, sort of mortal enemies at the table or sort of behind closed doors, what can they really um, come come to agree on? 
And Julie, since the last ceasefire, even Israel's uh, strongest allies have become increasingly frustrated with Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Do you think they'd become more forthright and vocal in pressing Israel to end this during a ceasefire? Well, I think the U.S. in particular, we've seen a a bit more of a divergence between Biden and Netanyahu more publicly over the last few weeks than we had seen in the the first couple of months after October 7th. Um, Blinken, Biden have been pushing Israel, but I would say their leverage is somewhat limited so far. I mean, that doesn't mean that it, that they won't keep keep trying and keep pushing for things. But I think they, they thought they would be able to have even more of an influence on ceasefire, on hostages, on aid, on the operation itself than they really have had up to this point. And on Bibi himself, I mean, it's no secret he's never been for a two-state solution. But how annoyed is Washington that he's sort of now constantly contradicting them about that being the goal? Oh, that is huge. I mean, he came out with this very clear pronouncement last week that he's, you know, would not support a two-state solution. This was right after Antony Blinken had done a tireless week of shuttle diplomacy through the region, trying to get regional partners on board and successfully doing so, saying we will help with the reconstruction, we will recognize Israel if there is a commitment to a two-state solution. And Netanyahu pretty much tossed it in the bin. And so I do think there's room for negotiations there, but um, publicly it's going to be tough. And Netanyahu has a very right-wing government um, that he's attached himself to that is just not going to be wanting to compromise. And Ben, there have been sort of in the past uh, month or so suggestions from the sort of far right of the Israeli government of, you know, other countries taking in the citizens of Gaza, of artificial islands being built uh, in the Mediterranean. Do you think these kind of signals from Israel that it no longer, or the government at least no longer believes in the two-state solution, that they want to retake all the old territories, uh, do you think that's done huge damage to the reputation of Israel in Europe and around the world? Well, I certainly think for anyone in Israel who, you know, does want to to kill off the two-state solution and maybe, you know, get rid of the Gaza issue itself for good, this is, they see this as the opportunity to do it. Um, but as you say, and to refer back to the last question, yeah, I think this is doing huge damage um, to Israel internationally because so many Western governments are used to parroting the line that, you know, we support two-state solution. And for Israel to be turning around and saying, you know, that's not happening, it's off the table, it leaves the citizens of, let's say, for example, the UK, who are supportive of the Palestinian cause, to say to our governments, well, what next then? What now? What what can you really do with this government um, if they're turning around and saying, you know, that's not on the table? I noticed today that David Cameron, the new foreign secretary, was meeting with uh, Netanyahu, tweeted their photo together and said, you know, I talked about the two-state solution. But you think, well, you know, what, what did he say in return? Mm. And I just want to ask you one particular question on this, which is quite specific. But I found the reaction, particularly from Ireland, quite interesting because there is a slightly internalised element to Israel-Palestine in the sort of Catholic Protestant, you know, you go around Belfast and you actually see those flags there. And there's been a controversy around sort of Ireland's, uh, the EU's messaging when it comes there more than I think any other EU member state. Why does that play so much? Um, Yeah, there's two things. I think if you look widely across the entire island of Ireland, there's a huge sympathy for the Palestinian cause. That goes right down to the the Dublin government, all the parties within that, even, um, you know, Leah Varadkar, the Taoiseach um, from from Fine Gael, who many would say is being closer to sort of centre-right and sort of closer to that sort of international establishment, you know, might traditionally be more in favour of of, of Israel. Um, They're being more critical than most. And then you have that, yeah, Northern Ireland thing where we've sort of 
um, supplanted ourselves and said, oh, well, they're like us. Oh, well, then they're like us. And there are certain parallels, but I feel this is much more complex. Um, it's, it's, you know, for some people, they do care deeply and passionately about the cause and they're out there marching and they're out there doing their activism. For others, it's a bit like supporting a football team, to put it quite crudely. Like Celtic Rangers, sort of. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, moving on. And I promise our final item will bring the levity today. But for this next discussion, my production notes feel like a rewrite of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Taiwan, Ukraine, North Korea, nukes on the brain, deep fakes, climate change, Putin's on a rampage. I could go on, but I'll leave it there. But these are all reasons why scientists and analysts have kept the doomsday clock at the unprecedented 90 seconds to midnight. The Chicago-based non-profit created the clock in 1947 during the Cold War tensions that followed World War II to warn the public about how close humankind was to destroying the world. So are things genuinely that bad or are we just being overwhelmed by relentless coverage of events? Uh, Julie, Ben, how are you feeling? How do you feel on that news about the clock? I mean, I will say, as someone who studies conflict, there's obviously many things to be extremely concerned about right now and, and all the things that you mentioned in your, your very nice lyrics there. Um, but I will say, the doomsday clock itself, it's like, the name just says it all. Like, they're always going to have it sound kind of bad. And, like, there are always bad things happening. Like, I don't know when the clock was ever set at a good time. Like, I mean... I, I mean, just, the mid-90s must have been pretty good post-Cold I mean, I, War. The that 90s was... were pretty great. I mean, yeah. but even even that, I just feel like the doomsday clock is probably always a bit grim. And I, uh, for me, I, I, I push back a little bit on the alarmism. I just think any point in history, you can you can make it sound quite quite awful if you're focusing just on all the the things that are happening in our world pretty regularly. Hmm. Ben, uh, well, I'm not sure that we need the clock to tell us that things are bad. <laughs> you know, I kind of knew before it came up. In fact, to see 90 seconds, I think is that it. Um, you know, things are pretty bad. Um, but then also, it's very difficult to tell because I look around and I think, oh, I could count all these bad things that are happening in the world and threats and this, that, and the other. But there must have been other periods where things felt just as bad, or in other periods where things were going on and you just didn't know they were going on because mm. we live and in this... And the bias of good things tend not to be reported. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, obviously we want to be aware and we very much are aware of the things that are going on in the world, the things that might be sort of tinderboxes that we've got to keep under control and people are always working at those things. Um, but, you know, is the clock going to help us? I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, Julie, but we have had some... Interesting public messages and I think purposeful public messages in recent weeks. Sweden's defence minister recently warned citizens to be ready for the threat of war. NATO officials have also sounded alarms publicly that war with Russia is foreseeable in the next 20 years. Why do you think they're making those interventions now? Well, I think that everyone is being realistic that we're at a time of heightened tensions. And so there is this sense of wanting to have some foresight in regards to that. Um, but again, I don't think these um, are, are the first time we've heard comments like this. And obviously, the Russia threat is just at a unique place for Europe than it's been, um, you know, really since the Cold War. And so I think there's emphasis there. I will say, too, I do think the doomsday clock and even some of the messaging, um, you know, there is kind of a nuclear bias there. And many of the hotspots that you mentioned, there is a nuclear element there. And I think that's what has the doomsday clock kind of on, on heightened alert um, and maybe why we're seeing, you know, uh, very high efforts for deterrence and perhaps what looks like militarization, but it's really trying to be deterrence in these um, nuclear or almost nuclear parts of the world. Because we don't have any news yet on a sort of renewal of the START treaty, do we, on the sort of Russian-US nuclear uh, controls? That's right. And my understanding is that's one thing that that tipped the doomsday clock a bit was the, the breakdown of some of these treaties that we've had for quite a while, as well as um, in increased nuclear um, investments in North Korea, China and elsewhere. Mm. 
I was going to say, I also feel like um, when we look at the threats to the world, we tend to talk about nuclear stuff and conflicts and so on. You know, I don't think we're, we're thinking about some of the real threats, which is the rise of AI. Um, mm. You know, earlier this week, voters in New Hampshire got this robocall from a fake Biden voice. That kind of thing could completely blow up democracy as we know it. Um, before I came in tonight, I saw a photograph of the Eiffel Tower on fire with 40k likes. It's not real. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing is just as dangerous, I mm. think, as anything else. And just final question on this before we move on to what I think will be the highlight of the show, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, the Telegraph is reporting that General Sir Patrick Sanders uh, here in the UK has warned that because of Britain's army shrinking, conscription may have to return. I mean, what do you make of the idea of trying to do subscri- uh, conscription in 21st century Britain? I mean, it's, to me, trying to do conscription in the UK and somewhere like the US and anywhere equivalent would be, be very difficult. And any politician floating that, I think, uh, you, you know, is probably not being realistic about how that will how mm. that will float among public opinion. Um, but again, I think we hear these things when people sense that there's heightened war, but the reality of them actually taking place would be very slim at this point. Ben? I mean, people went along with lockdowns. Do you think they'd do this? We, we seem to be a nation of rule followers yeah, for the most part in the pandemic. Lockdown meant you got to sit on your sofa. You know, mm. I, I, do I want to go into the trenches? You know, not really. Um, I, I think, yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like an old man, but I just don't think that young people have that sense of of discipline. Or you know, there's no. big questions to be asked about people's sort of allegiance to to the causes that that would. Symbolize. But do you think national service might be more? I mean, you know, countries like South yeah. Korea, for instance, you know, BTS at the moment, they're all doing their national service. That's much more normalised. Could that? come about again do you think? I think it's different things I think we need to get people learning the you know almost like the enigma you know cracking the codes we need people to be at the computers we need the tech people to be to be training. Mm. Okay well we're going to move on now and uh, you might hear a bit of clunking in the studio by our our researcher Neoma and it's all in aid of maintaining the so-called special relationship Uh, because the US embassy here in London has tried to quickly defuse perhaps the greatest tea-based transatlantic spat since the Boston Tea Party. American professor of chemistry, Michelle Rankle of Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, has published advice on how to get your tea just right in a book called Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea. Her controversial serving suggestion is before us all now a pinch of salt to counteract bitterness. Uh, So guys, have a sip and share your thoughts. Well, that's more than a pinch. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> that was like. A tea oh yeah, that is. Yeah, that is like swimming in the sea. That's a spoonful. Okay. <laughs> Do you think less would have made it any better? I don't know where this salt thing came from. I mean, the lemon I had heard about. Like, I have lemon. D- full confession. I have lemon in every cup of tea I have. I never have milk. I only have lemon. It's beautiful yeah, in tea, and lemon, I got that from my mum. That that is yeah. That's, that's legit. Yeah, I think. That's legit. But yeah, the salt. Yeah. I, I feel like the uh, the uh, and of course the American who came up with this. I was like, but I know uh, the real controversy was microwave. So I need to ask. Well, I'm going to cover that. Yeah, because the, not, the U.S. So. embassy was so concerned that they issued a tongue-in-cheek public statement making clear they quote. We cannot stand idly by as such an outrageous proposal threatens the very foundation of our special relationship. It goes on to make clear that this is not, nor will it ever be, the official policy of the US. However, they quickly undermine this by claiming they'll continue to make tea, quote, the proper way by microwaving it. (laughs) Why are you microwaving tea? I love this because to this day, like I got my parents a kettle because when I moved to the UK, I was like, these kettles are amazing. I got my dad (laughs) loves it. My mom's like, 
only microwave the water for her tea, and so she's just she's just it's, committed to yeah. the microwave. Because we had our producer today, Chris is American, and I happen to say, oh yeah, you guys don't have electric kettles because your voltage is too low. Electric kettles in America are very rare, aren't they? They are. They're kind of on the rise as like you know people are, are trying to be a bit more like international and cosmopolitan mm-hmm. or whatnot. But they're they're definitely like niche, I would say. It's put in the microwave if you want it, yeah. and, and tea is pretty niche too. Who's drinking tea instead yeah. of coffee? So I mean. Ben, microwaving tea, what does that, how does that make you feel? No, no. I mean, you know, in Ireland, a bit like England, we know we take tea seriously. It's mm-hmm. got to be brewed nicely. And, you know, yeah, a nice cup of tea. You can't be... Is it Barry's for you? Is that the traditional oh, yeah, Irish that, tea yeah, brand? That's, yeah. yeah, that gets sent all around the world. Yeah, it's um, it's very much an expat thing. Um, but no, we don't need to put them in the in the microwave because we, we all have kettles. So. <laughs> and Julie, when, you know, embassies do things like this, I mean, it is quite a, a good bit of fun. Is it, you know, something they think about carefully before they kind of wade into this? Or you know, I have no idea, but I will say one tweet I liked today was someone saying, whoever wrote this in the embassy should get a raise. I will say, like, I just, I love the memo they issued. I love the microwave, like, addition to it like I just think <laughs> being cheeky with diplomacy that way is uh, that, that's that's the best way to do if you can't have a little humor with it like why bother yeah and Ben the US Embassy was famously the new US Embassy in uh, South London down in Vauxhall was famously I think the first building in Britain in 600 years to be built with its own moat for defensive purposes do you think Brits should go and throw some tea in that moat <laughs> and protest at this so long as they put some salt in after it <laughs> I've been corrected at the embassy. They call it the water feature. They think the moat makes them sound a little too fortressy. So just, just. I mean, a that little, building is a, a fortress. It is one I of know. the most heavily defended <laughs> you, buildings in Britain. Yeah, there's no point in trying to divert suspicion now after you've built a moat. You know what else is there? <laughs> I know uh, salt in the tea. That's the other defence, I guess. So, and just finally on this, Julie, why do you think? Tea has never really kind of caught off in the United States because obviously it would have been a big import and, you know, a lot of British settlers there would have wanted to drink tea. Is it a political decision? Is it something to do with the Boston Tea Party? Why, why is it? That is a good question. I mean, I will say it's lower quality there. Like the little like limp like Lipton bags just don't really yeah. like live up. I, I, will, I do think some of it comes back to probably you know, what influenced the, the Boston Tea Party in the sense of, of paying taxes on tea coming from elsewhere, whereas coffee came up from Latin America mm. pretty pretty easily and quickly became adopted in the U.S. So I would just say, like, Brits do tea better. And so uh, I think it's if, if there was good British tea or, or Irish tea um, in, the, in the U.S., maybe it would, it would take on. And it's getting a bit more of a following, I will say. OK. Well, Julie Norman and Ben Kelly, thank you for joining us. And finally, on today's show, a film by British Nigerian photographer turned film maker Missan Harriman has made 2024's Oscar nominations for Best Live Action Short Film. Available on Netflix, The After follows a grieving rideshare driver who picks up a passenger and is forced to confront his past. Film and culture critic Ashanti Omkar caught up with director Missan and lead actor David Oyelowu. Uh, here is what they had to say. That's breaking news just coming into us. A man has been convicted of murder by a jury at the Old Bailey following an attack involving multiple stabbings which killed four people and wounded several others last year. Hi, Dio. It's James. I'm just calling to see how you're doing, mate. We all miss you. Photography is one of those things that, at least for me, compositionally, 
I'm always looking for truth within my lens. And when I had the opportunity to move into the moving image, I wanted to tell a story that would help people. You know, I, I, I know chronic depression is as high as it's ever been and suicide rates and anxiety uh, across the board globally is, is very worrying. And I thought, is there a way I could, could take people to that place, that dark room, and then go on a journey with them where hope is seen within that room? And having, I believe, one of the great actors of our time have a moment of complete madness to decide to work with an unknown filmmaker, as far as I'm concerned, was obviously, a, I believe, a, a life-changing moment for me um, and, and really the genesis of what you feel on, on the screen, uh, which, which I believe speaks for itself. 100%. Uh, David Oyelowo, what can I say? I always always call you a national treasure <laughs> because you've given us some stunning performances. And in this one, you had very little time to tell us this story, yet in every frame you were absolutely spot on. Tell me about this relationship with what Miss Anne told you to do and how you gave us this performance. Well, it, 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 the, the beautiful thing about this experience this relationship we have this journey we've been on is it, it started with a, a conversation about our shared experiences our personal and specific experiences i've had my own grief journey with the loss of both of my parents as you say it's such a finite amount of time there's no time to dilly dally there's no time to sort of soft pedal it this guy very quickly uh, in the course of the short film is dealt the blow that we all dread is literally in the midst of the unimaginable and he has to kind of navigate his way through that whilst still being part of the human race something incredibly difficult to do but if you live long enough there's a chance that loss will be part of your story and so the reason I felt able to jump in and do it was because of how safe I felt with Misan, um, because of his emotional intelligence, because of how connected to the to the subject matter he is and was. In terms of creating the, the world that you created, did that take you a lot of time? Because I know with your photography, you're not somebody who went into it and went to photography school. You haven't gone to film school, but you've managed to create something that looks, you know, for me, the London I walk through. And you've, you've managed to put all that into one very short film. Yeah, I mean, that, there's that Robert Frank quote that I use a lot saying, you know, although I've come into this later, you know, the, the, the quote goes, um, the eye should learn to listen before it looks. And I think my eye has been listening my whole life. I'm quite sure that I would have failed photography school and certainly failed film school because my brain is not wired in a way where I would have passed any kind of traditional exams. But I know emotion when I see it. I believe in collaborating with all the amazing people that come together to make the moving image. And I love that so much because in photography, it can be a, a lonely you know, road. It, it can be um, a profession of solitude, which I also love. But this is my first time collaborating with such a broad range of people that are so passionate about what they do. So for me, it was a learning experience, but I feel like I finally found where I'm supposed to be. And thanks to, to, to people like David and Nikki Bentham, who, who have really looked after me throughout this process, I, I feel I'm home.
Well, that is deep. And over to you, David, from, well, I would say in the last four or five years, I've been watching how you've developed your production company. You've had your amazing wife, Jessica, and, and you have been doing so much to bring very inclusive cinema, TV, there's a lot of representation that you're bringing to the world with what you're doing. I would love to hear a bit more about your your kind of thinking behind it and where you're taking this. Yeah, I mean, the, the phrase we use all the time at our company, Yoruba Saxon, is uh, we're, we're here to normalize the marginalized. And in, in doing so, I truly believe that you can do that very tough thing of breaking down people's prejudices. Prejudice is born out of fear, fear of the unknown, fear of people who you don't feel a connection to because you didn't grow up around them or with them or in their country or their perspective or whatever. And as I have lived most of my life in the UK, a lot of my life in America now, a decent amount of my life in Nigeria and other African countries, we are quite simply more alike than we are different. And one of the ways to, to do that or to show that is through storytelling, storytelling that doesn't shy away from the specific, but exhibits the universal within the specific. You know, Miss Anne and I are quite specific. We are black, British men of Nigerian descent who are incredibly proud and engaged with our Nigerianness, but we are also citizens of the world. That's always going to be reflected in our stories. And when you see the after, it's not a black story. It's not about race, but who we are is woven in, but who you are will be seen within that 18 minutes if you are a living, breathing human being. And I think that's threading the needle, being specific and true to what you believe in, who you are, where you're from, and allowing people from every corner of the globe to somehow see themselves within that story. And before I let you go, there's lots of awards buzz that this is for both of you. What would you like to tell the listeners about about a film like this that's out there with with the biggest, actually? You've got yourself right next to Wes Anderson and Pedro Almodovar. Well, look, it's my first rodeo and to be in the same company as people that I've looked up to, you know, my whole life really seems almost as if I'm I'm living a dream at the moment. But um, for all those folks that were afraid to take the road less traveled, hopefully they see this 46-year-old man that started this, the whole journey, the whole journey at 40, and really kicked it off at 43, being in this place where the universe has listened and received me, Hopefully, people will watch this film and know it's never too late to listen to that inner voice. Well, that's all for this edition of The Monocle Daily. A big thank you to my panellists today, Julie Norman and Ben Kelly. Today's show was produced by Chris Chermack and researched by Neoma Aikwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Vincent McAvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thank you for listening. 